Hey guys, what's up? It is week 308. I got a bunch of reviews for you, some 1981, some new releases, so let's hop into this. The first one is from Arrow Video, and this is Heart of Dragon. And this is a Sammo Hong film, uh, directed, also stars him, and of course it stars Jackie Chan. So this is obviously not uh, the first collaboration that these guys have done. They've done a slew of them. The movie also has a bunch of recognizable faces that you'd know from like any of the, you know, uh, Shaw Brothers or Golden Harvest, or, you know, the guy from Mr. Vampire is in here, is kind of like a SWAT commander. So the opening of this movie kind of does this major fake out you know it's very weird it's very similar to zero boys fake out <clears throat> so you have like this kind of big thing like uh jackie chan is running through the the woods with like some teammates and he's trying to survive and there's like a group trying to hunt him of course you know this is a fake out there's no surprise there and it learns that these guys are like an elite group of like kind of swat cops and they they pass everyone else fails so we kind of follow Jackie Chan's day job for a while and see him and his team. And uh, he's also like kind of struggling and juggling with his uh, his home life, you know, his married, his like a relationship status. And Samuel Hung is his, his older, it might even be his older brother, um, his younger brother, yeah. And he's mentally handicapped. Um, so, so it's kind of strange. Obviously, they wouldn't have you typically a, a non-mentally handicapped character play this role. But, you know, with Samuel Hung, he has to do a lot of kind of his own stunts and bumps and stuff like that. So, but... Um, uh, I, I know it is ridiculous and played for comedy at times, but he does really kind of capture that childlike quality. I think he does a really good job, you know, and he's also directing the film. So that's a feat in itself. But uh, it actually has a lot of really touching moments between Jackie Chan and Samuel Hung in here. And you can actually see Jackie Chan. He, he does a really good job in his acting, especially when he has this breakdown. But uh, there, there's a, there is a lot of laughs in here, especially because Samuel Hung plays out plays with a lot of like the neighborhood children. And he has that mentality. So that plays in for some laughs, especially at this like kind of this restaurant. But... <clears throat> um, the whole thing becomes this kind of like tragedy, kind of comedy tragedy of airs where um, supposedly like it's just very complicated where there's these jewelers that are like these criminals that are like stolen these jewels and they're going to sell to someone. And what happens is the cops know they have them. They break in. They run away with the jewels. They stash them somewhere. Well, on accident, Samuel Hung robs them in a, in a game and the, they hide the jewels. Uh, another like one of the older kids brothers who's a thief figures out about it. So he goes and gets the jewels. So he's trying to spend them. Anyways, it gets back to everything Jackie Chan is in trouble with his supervisor it gets really complicated but what it all leads to is an amazing fight scene at the end in this factory now what they do really well here is there's like a handful of goons like I said about these martial arts movies you have like kind of squads of guys you have the good guys that are Jackie Chan's buddies one of them always getting him into trouble with like a whole bunch of guys at like a restaurant and getting these fights because they always sprinkle in as many fights as they possibly can in these movies to keep you entertained and that's what you kind of expect in here but it leads up to this like giant awesome battle in this big like abandoned warehouse or like factory high-rise factory deal where it's like under remodeling so like all the bad guys are coming in they, a lot of them you recognize and construction workers that are helping them and it's just a violent crazy stuff thing going on with like uh jackie chan trying to save samuel hong and he's got a couple of his buddies from his workforce it's it's a really kind of a a nice kind of thing here and like i said there's like some really decent touching moments in here especially jackie chan has like a breakdown he said you think this is easy and he has like tears in his eyes i was like it's very impressive and then you know uh in the, in the states jackie chan a lot was the martial arts guy but a lot of comedy elements as well although you know he, i think he got to flex his um 
acting muscle here more than he typically does on the emotional level. And he's really good. The stunts are good. The fights are good. The characters are good. And Samuel Hung's really funny and, and very physical in here as well. So as far as the special features are concerned, we have uh, two cuts on here. We have the 91-minute Hong Kong cut, theatrical, and then we have the 99-minute uh, extended Japanese cut with via seamless branching. We have original lossless Cantonese and English mono audio on both cuts, plus Mandarin on a theatrical cut and with, and Cantonese's alternate score on extended cut. Optional subtitles for both cuts. Brand new commentary by Frank Jin and F.G. DeSanto on the extended cut. The making of First Mission and the First Mission pre-release event. Two extended featurettes made to promote Japanese release by Sasujuku. Um, sorry about that. Sakat Kuk. That's going to be a tough. Archival interviews with Jackie Chan. And uh, archival interviews with Rocky Lau. Lay. Um, two archive interviews with director star Samuel Hong. Archival interviews with cinematographer Arthur Wong. Alternate English credits as the first mission. Trailer gallery, including the music video trailer by Sue Ru. Image gallery, versatile sleeve, all that good stuff. It looked great. It sounded great. It's got a lot of familiar faces in here. A lot of good action. And there is stakes. You know, it's not one of these movies where you 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 know people not one person dies. And during the credits, they show you some some stunts that didn't go quite as planned. And I always love seeing that. Okay, next up is the last one in the Lucas Moodinson collection, and this is from, what, 2013? And this is We Are the Best. And this one, it goes back to being in Scandinavian, I believe, Swedish language, and the previous was his first film in English. So he goes back to his uh, own, co own country and does this one. But this one is the one I actually had heard about years before I even knew who Lucas Moodinson was. You know, I recognized the cover and everything like that. And uh, this is a coming-of-age story, um, a slice-of-life story, but it's about a, a all-girl punk rock band. And it's not your typical all-girl punk rock band story or, you know, coming-of-age like band story. You know what I mean? It's not one of these ones where you are just going to watch these group of people have this giant amount of success and this really kind of cheesy Hollywood style ending it's more grounded in a lot of ways to be honest and it's it really just sh uh, stops to show you this small little particular part of these people's lives and uh, I, I can appreciate that so what we have here is two kind of uh punk girls one of who kind of embraces it and she has like the mohawk and one of which is more i would say i wouldn't say on the nerdy side she's more considered dorky than the other girl but they're both kind of outcasts they don't have many friends and uh they try to struggle to create this 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 band they they there's some really funny like back and forth between this and like a heavy metal band that they don't really get along with that is older and they're boys and it's really funny and they kind of go to this common space where they they want to like practice and everything and they always butt heads um so they need a third member of their band and there's this quiet girl there that plays in the talent show every year she's excellent on guitar so they ask her she does acoustic guitar of course but eventually they kind of befriend her and she becomes in the fold. So we kind of just follow these kids around. We see their home life. We see their parents. We see how they interact with them and how their personalities reflect what they've been and deal with in their home lives, how they relate to each other. And we also have some romances, you know, childish romances, right? You know, 12, 13 years old, that kind of deal. Um, there's some really funny moments. It is like a, a drama comedy. Uh, some good stuff here where they beg for money to get an electric guitar. And instead of spending the money on electric guitar, they go just eat a bunch of junk food in the mall or the food court, which just really funny and the reactions that all these people have when they ask them for money you can't just beg for money not in this country all this kind of stuff like that but uh no I, I just really liked it and i liked where it ended where it chose to end where it chose to start you know it's that doesn't out where it's welcome it doesn't have the typical storyline it doesn't show you the typical life and times of a band and I, I appreciated that and also it's the perspective of three scandinavian girls in a punk rock band that's a kind of a rare perspective to see to be honest so i really enjoyed this one
one. Thought it looked good. Thought it sounded good. I like the music choices they have. Uh, pretty impressive stuff. So essentially, um, it is also a period piece. Again, this guy always does these period piece movies, right? So we have a high definition of course Blu-ray uh, presentation. We have new interview with Lucas Mudetzen, moderated by film programmer Sarah Lutton. New interview with cinematographer Ulf Brantes, moderated by Lutton. New expression: a look at the background to the film by Swedish punk historian David Anderson. Q and A from 2013 London Film Festival screening featuring Mudetzen and stars Levi Lamon and Mira uh, Barkhammer. Uh, theatrical trailer and image gallery of course so, yeah pretty good stuff uh, pretty fun movie enjoyed it um, I think you guys will too all of them are different unique in their own way um, not any of them are very similar they share similarities and themes but for the whole for the most part they're all completely different I think it's a nice little look at this guy's career and everything like that nice box set if you're a fan it's a must-have okay so now we're gonna continue the bird demic saga of course everyone's favorite series including mine and I don't want to be like a facetious asshole or anything like that so let's just get to the movie. It does have its place. It is in this uh, box set, The Wings of Disaster, all three of them featured in here. Covered the first one last week. And now we're going to hop into the second one. Now, I believe the first one was 2010 and the second one is 2013. I made a mistake. Let me get this out of here. I made a mistake. Like so often, this director will do in his own films. But maybe everything's on purpose. Who knows? So Birdemic 2, The Resurrection. This time, Hollywood is about to take a beating. No shit. COVID, COVID took, a, took a beating out of fucking Hollywood too. But uh, maybe this one took a little bit more. So Birdemic 2, same director returns three years later. He has a lot of the same cast, including the first the leads of the first two, even the mother of the uh, the uh, female uh, interest or love of his character. There's like two stars. I don't, I don't know. One of the leads, the female, the, one of the leads' mothers is in this one. She pops back up in here. So essentially now we're kind of switch gears and we follow um, this struggling kind of indie filmmaker. So, you know, in the first one we see how like uh, business is and how easy it is to make a sale and how successful it is for everything to come together this time we're going to see since the director is a big time film director now we're going to see how it is to make you know a film uh from his point of view this big hollywood dream and all this kind of stuff here so we have this character this guy who is looking to make a movie i don't even remember what it's called he has all these ideas it's an indie he made a, a big hit that was taken away from him he made a big indie darling before that so essentially this guy is on his way to make a movie and of course the birds are going to attack again now his best friend of course is the character from the first one and this director is also having a budding romance with one of the actresses he would hire of course and they're all going to make this movie together but while they're on set the birds of course attack the cgi birds and this time we kind of focus on like the big movie sets uh and you know cgi birds are attacking sets for long periods of time including one slasher film and you gotta love that his way to look at a slasher film what it is just a guy chasing girls half naked girls in a locker room with a knife he's not too far off right i'm going through 1981 and seeing all the slashers but it's really funny to see his interpretation so blatant and so ridiculous on screen. Um, so basically, we see a bunch of these birds killing people through the back lot. And we have a ragtag group of survivors. They pick up more on the way. Some drop off. And it's a post-apocalyptic movie. It doesn't feel like anybody mentions the uh, the stuff that happened in the first one, even though they clearly lived through it because they reference it at one point saying, oh, this is my friend, the, the scientist in the first one. It's like, are you guys not going to bring up that this happened like, three years ago or what or that the birds never leave or are we waiting for them to come back regardless it is what it is it's fucking ridiculous um cgi is terrible i do think that the production value went up 
You know, I do think that there's less uh, really distorted sounds, but they're still there. Um, the acting is still just as awkward and weird, and the editing the same kind of deal, right? All that kind of like language barrier stuff where he just doesn't let the actors do their own lines because uh, the way they see the interviews here the lead actors talking about it, he's like he, he would tell you to do it like this and he didn't want you to deviate so it is what it is and he said he didn't have a great time on the first movie but he generally did come back for the second one and he's like he's glad he did that kind of stuff you know um but it, it, it's a strange movie and like you can't really judge the actors or any of that stuff like that it's solely on the direction and the writing so it's just so hard to predict if these people are just bad or the movie's just that bad or just inept or weird but like i said people do get a certain kick out of these movies and this one i think has more action so there's that if you're into it so then we have it makes plan nine uh from outer space look like 2001 a space odyssey okay audio commentary with director james nugan uh, audio commentary with producer Jeff Gross and actors Alan Ball and Thomas uh, Flavalordo. Audio commentary with cinematographer Bonnie Hacker and actress Whitney Moore. Cast and crew interviews behind the scenes. And, of course, a trailer. There is some blood here. You know, after the post attacks, there's a lot of, like, gore and stuff gunked on their faces. But, you know what, also here, this one leaves it wide open for a third one. Which we know we get because there is a third one, Birdemic 3, Sea Eagle. Alright, we're going to get into those 1981 movies. Woe be unto him who opens one of the seven gateways to hell, because through that gateway, evil will invade the world.
say on a Valentine's Day is a curse that'll live on and on. And no one will know as the years come and go of the horror from long time ago. In this little town, when the 14th comes round, there's a silence and fear in the air. Remember the morn that the legend was born All the shock and the horror was there Oh, the legend they say on a Valentine's Day Is a curse that'll live on and on And no one will know as the years come and go Of the horror from long time ago And no one will know as the years come and go of the horror from long time ago. First up is a banger. It's been a while since I've seen this one, and this is uh, Hospital Massacre, a.k.a. X-Ray, starring Barbie Benton, um, directed by the director of Last American Virgin, Bo Davidson, I believe his name is. Anyways, Last American Virgin's great. And this comes on a double feature with Schizoid from 1980 with Klaus Kinski and Christopher Lloyd, which I covered for 1980. But X-Ray, which these are both produced by Canon or distributed by uh, Glowin Globus. And you know what? I don't think there's that many horror movies from 1981 distributed by Glowin this year. Now, 1980, there was a handful, including New Year's Evil, um, Schizoid. So, um, yeah, okay, X-Ray here. This is a 4K, of course, from Vinegar Syndrome, both on their own disc, which I love, and then you get a second disc with all the special, a third disc with all the special features on there. So, anyways, X-Ray. I'd seen this movie years ago, and I didn't remember much, except that I remember enjoying it. Um, so, yeah, a Slasher from a Canon Pictures, why not, from the director of Last American Virgin. Gotta love it. So, this one should be called Red Herring, the movie. Um, it makes, like, the Red Herrings in Giallo movies look, you know, like they're not doing it very much, because here, it's like every second, everybody, everybody, it hits you over the head with it. It opens up in the very beginning, uh, basically kind of like a pieces style thing, which is a year later where we witness this brutal murder or nightmare in a damaged brain from the same year, um, 81, I mean. So essentially this kid, uh, there's these kids and she gets this, this young girl gets a Valentine in the mail and she's like, ew, it's from somebody she doesn't like named Harold. Um, basically, and the, her friend and her start laughing and she comes back and her friend's been murdered. And it's it's Harold watching the whole time, staring in the window. So now we kind of fast forward and we see her um, in a hospital waiting for some results. Barbie Benton, she goes there. She's had her like lungs examined or x-rayed ooh, just for, you know, a job. And it's just supposed to be a kind of confirmation. Nothing serious. You got the job and here you're good to go. But uh, it's kind of complicated because at first they can't find the doctor who was supposed to be doing this. Um, it turns out that the ninth floor is being fumigated and the killer's hiding out there. Mask, kind of like with the mask so you can't tell who they are. And they've been killing a bunch of people. Anybody that discovers them, anybody that's going to stop, you know, uh, get, make sure that this girl leaves the hospital after she gets her information, all those people will be picked off. So the kill count's fairly high. The, the murders are brutal. And she's being kind of dicked around this hospital by all these doctors. And everybody seems like a jerk. Um, from her fiancé, doesn't seem like a jerk. She's iffy. The two doctors or three doctors that she's coming around seem like assholes. Um, there is a weird drunkard that's wandering the hospital grounds without any supervision. It's kind of hilarious. It's like, what is this, The Kingdom by Lars von Trier? People just walk around and do whatever the 
the fuck they want in the hospital. Um, but like literally this, this drunkard in the elevator, he's like, it's such a funny moment. Like you call it a mile away, like, like red stuff falls on Barbie Benton shoe. And you're like, that's not, they're not starting like this. It's clearly like ketchup or something. It goes up and there's this drunk in the corner eating a hamburger. And it's just like, are we fucking doing that? It's so weird. So bizarre. There's uh there's a, there's nudity, of course, there's sleaze. It just seems, honestly, this is a second slasher film in a hospital from 1981, including Halloween 2. Um, and it also is the second Valentine's Day slasher from 1981, um, it, along with My Bloody Valentine. So it's kind of got double. It's a, it's a slasher from 81 in a hospital, and it's a slasher from 81 that's a Valentine's Day horror movie, which doesn't typically happen. Another takeaway from this film is that the killer, when he murders, he screams. He's gone. He's just rage filled and it's kind of terrifying to be honest because you're so used to silent killers like uh, as slashers you know like uh, uh, Michael Myers or, or Jason Voorhees so when you hear the killers scream like enraged not talk just scream and being upset although they kind of do give away the killer you can maybe make up your own mind say well maybe this or this that you kind of like tr- trick yourself into it um, as far as the special features are concerned for Hospital Massacre aka X-Ray there is a handful um, let's find this. Um, sorry about this. They're all together here. We have uh, Ultraviolet Vengeance and Talent, Technicians of X-Ray, brand new making of doctor- documentary featuring interviews with cast crew of X-Ray, Bad Medicine, archival interview with X-Ray director Boaz Davidson. So yeah, they uh, definitely talk a lot about the movie and they seem to be happy that they did it. They say people still come up and ask them about X-Ray. Uh, the acting's solid. It's cheesy. It's fun. It's gory. It's sleazy. It's kind of what you expect for a slasher movie. And I know this is not going to be a very popular opinion, but I, I don't, I'm not saying it's a better movie than Halloween 2, but it's a much easier watch. And the pacing is, is it's not great, but it's, it's equivalent to Halloween 2. <laughs> so X-Ray looks great in 4K too. Was It was a major upgrade, so check it out. Okay, continuing that 1981 run. So right here we have one directed by Frank Logia, and this is Fear No Evil. And I saw this years back when I was a, a young kid. On uh, Whenever they put out the DVD, Anchor Bay put out a DVD of this years back. Um, and this actually stars, um, what is this, Angus, uh, well no, it's Stefan Angram. Now I knew him because he was in the movie Class of 1984, one of my favorite kind of revenge films. And he plays uh, one of the, the uh, villains, one of the kids and his name is drugstore and he provides all the drugs and he's like this skinny lanky kind of guy um good good in that and this one he's just a bizarre character this is essentially like male carry um but it has way too many storylines this director would go on to do lady in white he also starred in um nightmare symphony which was released a couple of years back where he plays basically Lucio Fulci style character. It's a remake kind of cat, cat in the brain, except, but they're using Frank Logia as the main character. And they're kind of showing clips from fear, no evil and all that kind of stuff, which is kind of cool, kind of neat. Um, I, I'm not the biggest fan of that film. I never actually did get to see lady in white, but here we go. Fear, no evil. So, the first thing I noticed rewatching this, I was like, man, they have so many needle drops, so many big songs. I believe like the Ramones were on here, all sorts of stuff like that. I'm like, how do they afford all these needle drops? And for the most part, the movie looks like it's made on a budget. Like it opens up and, and we kind of register like that. This, it's a weird storyline. It has like narration kind of explaining exposition, essentially that they're always trying to rebirth, you know, Satan on earth. And there's three angels to stop him. Michael, Raphael, I can't remember that. So like any time at earth there, the three angels will be there as well as Satan, a reincarnation of Satan. It's always for the three angels to try to stop them. So it kind of like this this kind of constant cycle of good versus evil, right, in this small town. So, of course, uh, this young boy is born, 
uh, to an older couple and they try to get them baptized and of course the whole church reigns in blood pretty cool um the parents are absolutely ridiculously over the top actors i think they're fun though and uh over time living with uh, this this boy as he grows into a teenager the mother goes comatose the father becomes a drunk all that kind of stuff and at the same time this kid is getting bullied at school by you know some really weirdo bullies like this is the weirdest scene in here i mean what is an 80s horror film without a shower scene a boy shower scene you know so they kind of recreate i guess their version of carrie in the shower and it's pretty intense there's a lot of uh you know blatant homosexual tendencies here by the bullies which i think is probably what the director's getting at you know these bullies you know they they hate themselves so they're uncomfortable and they harbor these things but with the power some weird shit starts happening um the movie's infamous for a dodgeball scene i think everybody remembers the dodgeball scene it's probably the funniest scene the most memorable scene and the the best uh person being killed with a ball since uh, deadly friend which came later from Wes craven right so so we have all that going on which i think people will enjoy but for me the tone of this movie is strange because we have like the satanic stuff and the try to resurrection of the devil and the bowling which i like i think that's the better part of the film but that whole angle with the three angels it comes across so melodramatic and so lifetime movie it's just strange tonally like the small town is fun it's decent um and the ending has some amazing stuff in here the ending has like a lot of creatures and zombies coming back to life which really kind of saves the movie to a certain extent and i love all that stuff going on but the the tone is just strange and the acting comes across bizarre and just not particularly believable um and the lead i i just don't know if he's cut out to be a lead to be honest and i don't know if that's the writing the direction or just the acting from this character but for the most part i think that the ending has some saving moments to it that are really cool but overall there's some really painful pacing issues on this one and it's almost like they grabbed two movies and ran them full speed in each other and one's pretty good and one's pretty awful so it's kind of where i'm at with fear no evil um there is some special features on here a 4k master from original film elements new interview with angus stefan angram and special effects artist john eggett new commentary with stefan angram so pretty cool uh yeah check it out okay when we're talking demonic possession from 1981 there's been a handful of movies from 81 involving satanic stuff possession gates of hell of course the beyond and we just had fear no evil we'll be talking about demonoid this episode so one of my personal favorites of 1981 one that uh, involves demonic possession and all sorts of craziness and swords and it's a video nasty and it's got Koopa Smith. That's right, Clint Howard in Evil Speak. Um, so I, I seen this one a bunch growing up. I always enjoyed Evil Speak. Probably had a VHS at Evil Speak to be honest. So like I said, uh, Clint Howard is essentially in this military uh, academy. His parents are dead. He's a charity case as they put it and he's picked on by everybody. Um, the bullies are led by Don Stark from that 70s show uh he's young and he's he's a complete dick named bubba and uh second Bubba of the Year along with uh, Larry Drake from Dark Knight of the Scarecrow and that's not the only connection that this has to Dark Knight of the Scarecrow Claude uh, Claude Earl Jones is in here uh, from of, of Dark Knight of the Scarecrow as well and he plays the coach which is fun so essentially there is a soccer team in this church it's a big deal and everybody plays on the team no matter who they are Clint Howard is terrible he's lonely everybody picks on him nobody likes him from his teachers to the, the priest everybody there doesn't like him um, the movie's riddled with character actors are G. Armstrong is the drunk sergeant that works in the basement. And then you have Charles Timer, who's in stuff like Emperor of the North, Long, uh, um, Longest Yard, and Outlaw Josie Wales. If you ever seen this guy, he's in the Bronson movie too. What's the Bronson? Stone Killer. If you ever seen Charles Timer, you'll know him right away. He's super fucking memorable in all those movies. He's great in this one as well. Love him as the colonel in here. 
We also have Joseph Cortez, who you'll recognize. Uh, Lan- uh, the the, the uh, what the fuck? The guy from uh, Godfather, sleeping with the fishes. You know, uh, Luca Luca. Uh, I can't remember his fucking name. Lenny Bravo. Whatever it is. Anyways, he's in here from the the Godfather. And there's a couple other familiar faces I don't want to forget to mention uh, that are wonderful. Jeez, uh, I got Charles Timer. Oh, Claude Jones. Earl Jones is the coach. He's fucking fantastic. So essentially what happens is these bullies just pick and pick at him, and no one likes him. No one sticks up for him. So he starts to kind of like one day he finds this satanic book when he's supposed to clean out you know, the cellar. And at the same time, years ago, Richard Mole, of course, another great character actor, he was this, uh, what was his name? He was this evil kind of guy that worshipped Satan, and he was banished from this town, and he cursed this place. So his, like, kind of, like, placement, this book and him are all kind of still in the school somewhat, right? So Cooper Smith starts to mess around with this book, and he starts to kind of search on the computer for, like, satanic rituals and everything like that. And he's always cut off, so basically he sneaks the computer down in this, like, old-school, like, cathedral basement, which is all satanic-looking and antique and uh, antiquated and everything like that. Looks awesome. Looks awesome. So he starts communicating through Satan through the fucking computer. How 1981. Of course, the graphics are dated. They're silly. They come across, you know, rough. But it is what it is, you know. No different than the thing in 81 when uh, their computer play in that game, in that movie. But, of course, it's more of it here, and it's much cheesier. So Cooper Smith, Clint Howard, uh, brother of Ron Howard, of course, and, and son of Rance Howard, basically starts working on this, and uh, the computer needs blood. And eventually he gets the blood, and we get some revenge, because these bullies were monsters to him. They were absolute monsters. Everybody in the school was a monster to him. Uh, So people start to get picked off in violent, brutal ways. And it it takes a while to get started, I will admit. There's a couple deaths before the finale. But that finale, that last 20 minutes, is one of my all-time favorite things. Flying Clint Howard. I kind of regret not putting in my 1981 opening, especially when uh, Charles Timer says, Cool boss, mate! And what happens to him afterwards is awesome. I love this movie. It's a really fun revenge film. Now, be a little patient with it. It, it. it does go a little slower than a lot of people would like, but when it delivers, it delivers. There's not very many movies where people use a fucking broadsword to take out a bunch of people in gory fashion and people that you want to see die, right? So eat your heart out, Carrie. I'm just I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But, uh, yeah. So we have audio commentary with producer-director Eric Weston, interviews with cast members Joseph Cortez, Clint Howard, Haywood Nelson, Claude Earl Jones, Richard Mullen, Don Stark. These are all great. Some of these are archival. Um, I think the Clint Howard and the uh, Don Stark are archival from the old uh, Code Red DVD. I, I don't remember if they had a Blu-ray. I know they had a DVD. But, uh, yeah. But now they have some new ones as well. I love seeing Claude Earl Jones talk. Um... Uh, where is he? Yeah, Clark Earl Jones, Richard Mole, and Clint Howard seemed like a nice guy. He breaks down everybody on here. Uh, R.G. Armstrong's great, too. See, so I'm going to say this right now. This is what makes a huge difference between evil speak and fear no evil. The gore here is great and stuff like that. Character actors. Character actors make the big difference. Clint Howard, R.G. Armstrong, Charles Timer, Carl Earl Jones, Don Stark. Um, uh, the guy from What's Going On and the guy from The Godfather. It's just Joseph Cortese riddled with character actors. The Latin teacher's good, too. Um, the library of it. The secretary's great. So it's just riddled with all these classic character actors that I love. Like, R.G. R. Armstrong lights up every movie. He's always, if he's if he's in fucking The Pack to Dick Tracy to the Peckinpah films, Great Northfield, Minnesota Ray, R.G. Armstrong is amazing character actor, one of the best. 
in some more horror films he's in with Race of the Devil and Children of the Corn, all sorts of stuff. You know what I mean? He's one of my favorites to see pop up in films. Charles Timer, I said, you never forget his face. Ever, ever, ever forget that guy's face. Uh, you may forget his name. You may not remember exactly where you've seen him, but you won't forget that fucker's face. And Evil Speak is riddled with, it's that guy. And that's my favorite guy. It's that guy. And Evil Speak's perfect at that. Love this movie. Love this movie. I don't think it'll make my top ten. It's too stacked of a year. I mean, in a movie, in a, in a place where you got, like, The Beyond and Evil Dead and American Werewolf in London and, and, you know, My Bloody Valentine, it'd be really hard for Evil Speak to make my 81. Some people used to list this as 83, so always the years are a little confusing. But this Blu-ray looks good, sounds good. Um, it, it's just fun and gory and just awesome. Okay, next up is from Vinegar Syndrome, and this is Demonoid, Messenger of Death, I believe, a.k.a. what was the other name? Macabre, and this is a longer version of the film, so it has two versions on here. This is 81, um, and it's rare that that scene right there actually does happen in the movie. It's pretty badass, but uh, yeah, so I never had seen this one. This is a first-time watch, and it stars Samantha Eggert from The Brood. Um, she's an amazing actress, and Stuart Whitman, who's in a million B-movies, Shadows in the Empty Room, uh, Sands Over... It's the one where he fights all the fucking baboons. Well, anyway, Stuart Women's in a million movies, Samantha Eggert in The Brood, of course, and a bunch of others. So this one I hadn't seen, and I, I didn't remember it was a killer hand movie, but this is the second killer hand movie of the year along with the 1981 Albert Stone film, The Hand. So we got two killer fucking hand movies in 1981. Yeah. I, what was the last one before this? Severed Arm or something? I don't remember. Or um, And the Screaming Starts. I mean, there's been killer appendage movies, okay, body parts, but two the same year, I get a kick out of it. And the director mentions he didn't know they were going to do the hand this year so it's not really like he's sitting there like we got to get demonoid in production so this one opens up a lot like beyond evil remember the movie from 1980 with john saxton where he's kind of excavating or working this like mine in like mexico so it's kind of like what uh samantha eggert and her husband are doing reminds me also of dawn of the mummy of course right from this year so basically they're kind of looking into this mind and they find what they shouldn't find. They say all the workers are scared to go down there because there's a bunch of mummies and dead bodies with one hand missing. And that's the curse. The bodies have the one hand missing. So they go down there and they find this kind of ancient weird thing. And of course the husband is possessed by this hand and it becomes his hand. Um, and then we start having kind of like a fallen storyline, right? Where the people with the hand commit want to commit evil. They're after Samantha Eggert. And there's a lot of weird deaths happening. People setting themselves on fire. People passing the hand one to another and them all going crazy she kind of goes to Stuart Whitman to get help um but yeah you know maybe he can help maybe he can't help maybe he's too drunk to care I don't know but uh there's some really cool moments in here like um like I think Samantha Eggert's really good in here but there's an unintentional comedy scene they use it in the trailer where she literally is like running for like a minute and she's like no and I was just like the ending too the ending is fucking fantastic and i was just like really that's what we're doing talk about unhappy ending brutal ending crazy ending special effects are decent there's some some gnarly moments here lots of severed hands lots of hands grabbing people's faces but for the most part i thought that the demonoid was pretty enjoyable you know i, I think the hands a little bit of a better film because it goes at it as more psychological but this is kind of like a nice little like cheapy uh horror film that i liked um i would definitely recommend checking it out the blu-ray and dvd are on there together like i said there's two versions and there is differences see the other one's longer so more dialogue i believe but it's a lot of the violence is cut out for the international market so i i kind of prefer to watch the shorter version which is gorier it looks good and it sounds good it is a region free disc i don't know if this one's still in print from vinegar syndrome but demonoid messenger of death i'd recommend it. it's a lot of fun 
Okay, the next one from 1981 is fucking bonkers, and I had never seen this one. Uh, this director, I think, would go on to a couple more movies, kind of in the same vein, and some other stuff. Uh, Mystics in Bali from Indonesia. This is the what second Indonesian film I covered for 81. I also covered Queen of Black Magic, which I enjoyed quite much. So Mystics of Bali, this is one of these iconic floating head movies, right? And there's a couple different monsters that are the floating head monsters. The the Karasu, I believe is that the Japanese one, but the Indonesian one is, what the hell do they call it? A Pekin something? I don't know. This movie's bonkers. Mystics in Bali is bonkers. It's one of the Mondo Macabro kind of like centerpieces when they first got started. It was one that was always in the opening trailers, always clips from it, and it's very iconic, right? It's the one with the floating head with the guts hanging out, and so essentially... This movie's really weird. So we have an American, of course, coming to this small little village, and she's kind of dating this guy, and she says, you know what, I want to learn, um, I'm trying to do a book on uh, black magic, or just magic in general. This guy says, I know a little bit about this magic, but it's very dangerous, and it's one of the oldest ones. But these shamans in the area might be able to point you in the direction or something like that. So he takes her to this old lady who's in the woods, supposed to know everything. She's really mysterious and sh- shrouded until she's not. And then she's like grotesque and melted and has these nails and she's supposed to be evil. And she's like, I'll teach you. And of course the girl starts to learn, but she's going to be taken advantage of. And this like kind of evil witch uh, lady starts to use her to gain immortality or forever beauty. So, you know, it's kind of like Queen of Black Magic in that sense. You know, like a shaman will tell you they're going to help you, but they're usually, usually manipulating you to do their business. It's the same thing in Mystics and Valley, except this one has a little bit more crazy effects. I, I wouldn't even say that. Queen of Black Magic has good effects and fun effects. This one has different, weird kind of body transformation effects where, you know, the two, when she's learning, they'll both transform into a pig or a boa constrictor, and it's fucking bonkers. The next day she'll throw up mice. It is weird. It is crazy. Just the subject matter on paper is enough probably to get a lot of people to watch. I mean, it's a floating head that feeds on onboard fetuses. Come on. It's similar to that movie Aswang, which was from 1991, which is like an American interpretation of these kind of stories. That movie's fucking bonkers as well. This one, I would probably say, is a little crazier because there's obviously going to be a language barrier. So it's dubbed in English, but, you know, it's not exactly translated perfectly, I imagine, because they're saying a lot of ridiculous things and they're just doing a lot of illogical things at the same time. But Mystics and Valley, it's entertaining. There's a couple fight scenes between these kind of mid- like these black magic practitioners or magic practitioners. I think uh, people enjoy this one. If you haven't seen Mystics and Valley, you owe it to yourself if you like weird cult cinema, no doubt. Okay, the next one from 1981 is Wolf, a.k.a. Stragala. And this is basically advertised as the Indonesian Friday the 13th. That's right. They didn't wait very long, right? And the first half is kind of like Friday the 13th, but the last 20 minutes are dead on. So this is the same director of... Um, uh, the Warrior, and what's the other one I watched this year? I believe Queen of Black Magic? Uh, no, no, Satan Slave. Satan Slave, the original, and The Warrior. Same director, and there's another one they did too, Ghost Money, Ghost Town. I can't remember 100%, but that's that's this year as well. So, essentially, uh, Wolf is about a group of campers, four kids that want to go camping, and they're kind of hanging out in the tent, and they run into these three people that are up to something very fishy. Um, they're diving and they are looking for hidden treasure. Um, they're, they're very bizarre. And the two younger ones start to be interested in the girls. So they all start to hang out. But, uh, meanwhile, they pull up a corpse out of a coffin where they're looking for the gold. And one of the girls starts to have nightmares. And there's definitely somebody kind of lingering around this area. We do see a murder in the very beginning. So we're not really sure if it's one of these people or if it's something entirely different. But since we know it's a Friday 13th ripoff, we kind of do know what's going on, right? Because the movie basically says, 
as a Friday the 13th ripoff everywhere you look it up. So um, it's fairly decent for the most part. Um, it's not perfect. The last 20 minutes literally is Friday the 13th, and it's kind of funny to see their rendition of it. Um, the nightmare sequence is cool. Uh, I like the location as well. It's around this lake. I, I like kind of like horror. You know, think Bay of Blood or any of the Friday the 13th. I think it works. Um, not always, though. If you look at 1980, there's some really bad, like, monsteroid lake horror, really terrible or the bill robain uh lake horror film from that year rana really bad stuff but hey when it's a slasher i guess lake horror works uh stranger by the lake's another good one so so anyways they just get picked off but they kind of wait till the last 30 minutes to do anything like there's some subtle scares some some spying some voyeurism but it really doesn't pick up until the last like 20 30 minutes there's like a crazy boat chase for the most part, it's decent. I, I think it's weaker than Satan Slaves for sure, and I'm sure it's going to be weaker than Warrior um, from Mondo Macabro as well. But that is um, Wolf, a.k.a. Sturgala. Oh, I should mention that it is getting a Blu-ray release. Yeah, Terrorvision mentioned that they got the rights to it, so that's pretty crazy. I watched it right before they announced it. I was like, oh, that's cool. That's neat. Okay, next up is the Patreon pick, and uh, this, I can't remember, David Luton picked this one, and this is La Dolce Vita, and from 1960, directed by Fellini, of course, um, super iconic Italian director. Um, you know, I haven't seen that many Fellini movies, right? I've seen some of his latter ones that were released on Blu-ray recently, seen a couple of those, but I don't typically watch or haven't had a chance to watch a lot of the classic Italian cinema that's not horror or genre-related, like the Fellinis or Bertolucci's or or Rosalini, or any of those kind of guys, or uh, Bertolini, any of those people, I really haven't had a chance to watch as many. So, like, watching La Dolce Vita, it is uh, damn near close to a three-hour film, and it's like a, a comedy drama, and it has tons of characters, and it's saying a lot, uh, maybe some stuff I don't understand, there's obviously some political stuff in here, considering the time, and another country, and how serious the film is in a lot of ways, but Anita Ekberg is in here, who's an um, uh, actress who appears in a lot of genre films from Italy and Europe, so she's recognizable, the lead is recognizable, but there's not, to me, like, I, I can't point out as many of the character actors as I would be able to point out if it was a, a you know, Euro crime or horror film. But it's black and white. In the very beginning, we have like a statue of Jesus being run through town and everybody's asking about it here and there. And we have like the main character, the journalist kind of screaming from here. And, and here's what it is. Here's about the movie. I know that it's called The Sweet Life. And they're like, oh, look at these privileged people and all the money they have and their aristocratic intelligence and these interesting, crazy parties. But at the end of the day, are they even happy? Are they even, you know, uh, they're kind of like struggling and, and one day at a time. But at the same time, they're telling you, they're basically very critical of these people and their lifestyle and life in general. But at the same time, I have to spend all this time with these people and I could care less about any of them. I'm missing a lot of messages. I'm sure I am. I know I am, but a first-time watch, I didn't enjoy this as much as I think I should have. Couldn't stand the main character. I know he's a very complicated, great character, and those usually interest me. You know, I love a lot of the Peckinpah characters, maybe because I can understand them. And I could understand this guy, too, but maybe it's just because he comes from money or he's involved with money. It's just the idea makes me a little bit more irritated at watching them struggle with their life. It's just not something that I'm very interested in, watching rich people you know, get too drunk and, and, and cry about their their life that they created. I'm sorry. I know it sounds insensitive or it sounds uh, 
um, wrong-headed, which I would agree I'm not seeing everything there should be. I mean, of course, it's well-made. The music is highly memorable. It's an epic. There's tons of characters. They go over and almost like vignettes where it's like three or four different stories where we have like kind of the opening with like Anita Epper coming into town. He works for a public, like kind of like, you know, publicity agency uh, and, and kind of shows her around seemingly falling in love with her. He almost falls in love with every woman he comes in contact with, right? He's that kind of guy, Casanova, if you will. And then we kind of have this kind of political deal here um, with the chill these children and then we kind of go into like a party sequence so we have all these different kind of vignettes to show the characters and show the lifestyle and everything like that but I, I just really have a hard time concentrating and talking about the film in general that's La Dolce Vita I'm, it's not for everybody and I'm just missing stuff I need a lot of context with this one but I'm glad I watched it you know I, I don't regret it it's just not I'm not really sure how I feel about it all right guys let's get these questions comments and concerns first up Ken Coakley, someone asked why 80s horror so reared over films that came out in the 90s or later. I would uh, attribute it to the fact that the 80s was a decade for franchises such as Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Evil Dead, as well as continuations of films from the 70s like Jaws, um, Texas Chainsaw, and others. So, I mean, I, I do see that as well. When it comes to, and also the video store. I think the video store is a huge part in all that. When it comes to non-horror, especially children's films, might be special to someone who was a child in those days, but most of them are very dated, such as E.T., Back to the Future, and numerous others. In about 10 years, they'll be praising Twilight and Hunger Games. I don't know about Twilight. I really don't. Um, David Lather, great episode. Love the clips and insights. Thank you. Chris Harper, love Project Wolf Honey. It's good stuff. Oh, what the flick? I love fanboy flicks. Take on the Birdemic trilogy. Recommended if you haven't watched, but I love good, bad movies um, when they are made right. Even though it's one of the most popular, I don't see Troll 2 as so bad it's good. It's just an okay movie, but Samurai Cop, The Room, Dangerous Men, and Personal Favorite, Nutbag are pure gold. Gold! Great video, man. Thank you. Horse Cinema. Don't forget Norman Fell as Mr. Roper in Three's Company. How could I? You know, Three's Company's a show I know of. I knew he was in it. Forgot to mention it. Didn't really watch very much. Um, Nick Mua, I'd almost forgotten that Thomas Harris had written Black Sunday, let alone that there was a cinematic adaptation. Top marks to Arrow for showing the movie this much love, especially considering the divisive subject matter. Spielberg's Munich, based on the same incident, still gets a lot of hate as I understand it. You sure know how to pick them, sir. Great show as per usual. Thank you. Questions. Uh, I seem to recall that you bought Vinegar Syndrome's release of From Beyond. Did you already own the previous release? If so, is it worth the upgrade? Yes, I did own the Blu-ray. I think it's worth the upgrade. I thought it looked fantastic. If you were to do another commentary, who would you like to be paired up with? Or do you like flying solo i definitely would want to do it with somebody else depends the movie and you can't a question like that it all depends the movie because i want somebody that knows a lot about the movie or i'd have fun with with that person so give me a movie and i'll tell you who i'd want to do a commentary with do you think primal rage inspired 28 days later the storylines are somewhat similar did Danny boyle borrow from classic italian cinema i don't know if he saw primal rage but the idea of fast running zombies that are angry or infected is nightmare city right so it's nothing super new uh, the idea, you know, the crazies, you don't turn into zombie, really, you just kind of lose your mind and you're contagious. I mean, Nightmare City or even Return of the Living Dead, they run. I, I don't know 100%. Um, I, I, he might have seen Primal Rage. Who knows? Uh, but people getting... The rabbit. Rabbit is the same deal. It's not a very original idea. I mean, the way it's constructed and the way he handled it, yeah, it was pretty original and good. But the, the, this basic core narrative, not really that original. Good night. Don't let the chimps bite. Uh, Supo A. Munich, he's responding here. Got a lot of hate. He's saying... Uh, oh, wait. Supo A. Munich got a lot of hate, mainly from Israelis, as it didn't depict either side as being dignified than the other, or specifically uh, Israel having the higher moral ground. It's a shame because it's a great movie. Carly, 317. Listen, the room is amazing. That's all I'm saying. Tommy Wiseau was making big Hollywood movie. Sam Maloney, do you have Xbox 360 games? Nope. 
Not me. Uh, movie Junkie Reviews. Ah, I love Piranha 2. And the Birdemic series. Absolutely, awesomely bad guilty pleasures. And it took me until last year to finally watch Black Sunday. Kentucky Kentuckinator. This felt like classic Mr. Parker episode. Glad to see you back in fine form. Thank you. Uh, Ilk Vomit. Sure everyone clamors over TCM, but to me, Funhouse is Toby's masterpiece. Hey, hi, I agree with you. The Funhouse is highly rewatchable. It's a masterpiece. Mad Science Films. I really couldn't get the dog tags, but I do love that it's broken into acts and an epilogue yeah it's pretty cool in that way similar to nightmares in the damaged brain um i think i'm on a caffeine high right now i just drank too much coffee a little dizzy so we're gonna do the uh update and i'm not gonna switch camera angles for it because it's only one but it's worth it it is the martin uh 4k from second sight with a booklet in here uh badass blu-ray and 4k love this movie bunch of special features on there yeah, lots of good stuff here. Audio commentaries, of course, a uh, bunch of them. One by Ken Ellinger, Travis Crawford, the original. Love this stuff. Uh, love Martin. I look forward to their Hitcher release as well. So basically, we're going to draw five Patreon names here. If you haven't been drawn out in the last few draws, let me know, and I'll bump you ahead. Let's get five out of here, see where we're at. Or if I ever forget to do yours after I drew it, let me know. Sometimes it gets confusing. Let's get five out. Okay, so first one up is David Scott, A Serious Man. Is that uh, the Coen Brothers movie? Then we have Jim Simon, the original gun crazy he wants me to cover. Can't go wrong with that. And then we have uh, Jonathan Wilhelm, Deadstream, which I dropped, but I'm not going to show you anyways, considering the fact I already covered Deadstream. So John Wilhelm, let me know another one you want me to uh, cover. Then we have David Luton, The Seventh Seal, and that is a Bergman movie. So that's three. We got two more coming out here. So what I'm doing, uh, Art Figueroa. We have Sunset Boulevard. Can't wait to watch that one. And last, John Wilhelm, Revelation Trail. So there we go. Uh, yeah, and I guess we're out of here, guys. All right, guys, thank you very much for watching, and as always, have a good one. Yeah.